Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. There's a famous scene from the classic movie, The Princess Bride, in which the hero of the story, Wesley, he rescues the princess from her kidnapper, Vizzini, by challenging him to a battle of wits. So uh, Wesley has Vizzini pour uh, two glasses of wine, and then he pulls out uh, a capsule of iocane powder, this uh, fictional uh, odorless, tasteless, deadly toxin. And then Wesley takes both the glasses, he turns his back, he dumps the powder, and he turns back around, and he sets one of the glasses in front of Vizzini and the other in front of himself, and he asks, where is the poison? You decide, we both drink, and we find out who is right and who is dead. And for the next two comedic minutes, <coughs> Vizzini reasons aloud with himself about how wise he thinks Wesley might be, how wise he thinks Wesley thinks Vizzini is, uh, the Australian origins of Iocane powder, uh, all sorts of things before eventually resorting to just distracting Wesley. He says, what's that? And while Wesley turns his back, Vizzini switches the glasses, and then he waits for uh, Wesley to sip his glass first before Vizzini drinks his own. And when Wesley announces, you guessed wrong, Vizzini counters, no, I switched the glasses when your back was turned. You just thought I guessed wrong. You fool. And he cackles. And in the middle of his cackling, he stops suddenly and falls to the ground dead because Wesley had poisoned both the glasses, having spent the last few years building up an immunity to Iocane powder. And the moral of the whole story is that you better be careful trusting in your own wit, in your own wisdom. Even the Bible's wisdom, the Proverbs, admonish us, be not wise in your own eyes. Because as our sermon title for this morning suggests, trusting in your wisdom is hevel, it is vanity, it is futile, it is unstable ground for your ultimate hope and meaning in life. Now, as we continue our exposition of Ecclesiastes uh, this morning in chapter 8, Solomon is going to pick up right where he left off last week. Pastor Thad appropriately titled his message last week in chapter 7, Foolish Living is Hevel. And so naturally, this morning, Solomon is going to turn to consider wisdom instead. If it's vain and futile and foolish to live foolishly, then perhaps the answer to life is just to live wisely, live the right way instead. Now, wisdom, as we're going to see, and as we've already seen, is a good thing, right? It's a great thing. In fact, speaking of Proverbs 3, it declares, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, for her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. 
Wisdom's great. Even here in Ecclesiastes, the otherwise cynical Solomon has already extolled wisdom's virtues for us multiple times. Back in chapter 2, remember he said, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. God has given wisdom and joy to the one who pleases him. And last week in chapter 7, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who are in a city. Wisdom's good. And yet, just like all the other good things that Solomon has explored thus far in Ecclesiastes, money, sex, pleasure, work, influence, power, justice, politics, religion, all good, but all fall woefully short of satisfying our longing, our need for something ultimate. Tim Keller defines an idol as a good thing become your ultimate thing. And even wisdom can be an idol. It can be a counterfeit God. A good thing turned ultimate, but ultimately empty. And while Solomon has already praised wisdom, he has also warned us of this already, of its limitations. Wisdom's limitations. Back in chapter 1, he said, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were before me, and yet I perceive that this is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And then again, in chapter 2, he warns, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity, and it's a great evil. And most recently, last week, in chapter 7, Solomon actually identified two shortcomings of wisdom. First, he said it's often unknowable. Verse 23, I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. And second, he says, even when you can know it, even when you can, you can take hold of it and grasp it, he says, our pursuit of wisdom is all too often obscured by our sin. Solomon had said, I, I try setting my heart on wisdom, but the minute an enticing, attractive woman walks in the room, all bets are off. Nine times out of ten, actually Solomon said last week, 999 times out of a thousand, my hypothalamus wins out over my prefrontal cortex. Solomon's 700 wives and his 300 concubines were case in point. But really, we're all just as susceptible to the allure of sin. We're just as plagued by sin's curse. And so as we begin chapter 8 now, we ought to be skeptical of wisdom's prospect all the way from the outset of ultimately being able to satisfy us. But Solomon is going to re-emphasize the point by reiterating wisdom's good. He's going to repeat it. And he's even going to list two of the, the greatest rewards of wisdom that it has to offer us. And yet, according to Accompanying those benefits, Solomon is also going to list six deficiencies of wisdom, three with each of the two benefits he gives us. So, so six inadequacies, six equally important things that wisdom cannot offer us such that his cumulative case that he's building here against putting your trust in wisdom is clear. Uh, uh, to paraphrase and, and, and uh, adapt P.T. Barnum's favorite, uh, famous quote about money, wisdom makes an excellent servant, and a terrible master. That's, that's what Solomon is going to tell us this morning. So with that introduction, would you stand with me as you're able? 
respect for the reading of God's Word. As I said, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. We'd love to give you a Bible this morning. If you don't have one, you can visit the info bar for one of those as well. Hear the Word of the Lord. <clears throat> who is like the wives? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. The king does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy upon him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, And I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning again for your word. A lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Thank you that it is wisdom that teaches us how to live well. Yet, Father, we confess this morning that we need more than knowledge, more than the understanding of how to live well. We need the ability to actually do it, to carry it out. And we know that that only comes through your son, Jesus. So I pray, would you open our eyes to see? Would you open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive the gospel this morning, the good news of Jesus. Help us to see Jesus even in this uh, seemingly hopeless 
Old Testament difficult passage. Help us to see your son and your word this morning and be set free by his gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Solomon opens with this observation that wisdom is good. Verse 1. He starts with two rhetorical questions here. Who is like the wise? And his implied answer is no one. Not the wealthy, not the powerful, not the reputable. No one compares to the wise. Second, who knows the interpretation of a thing? Implied answer. Not nearly enough of us. Uh, Solomon pointed out back in chapter 7 that only one in 1,000 people that he'd crossed paths with in life was wise. And so he says, if you manage to find someone like that, you find someone who knows how to interpret things, who can explain difficult passages of God's Word to you, someone who can make sense of this crazy thing we call life, then cling to them. Surround yourself with people like that, full of wisdom. For a man's wisdom makes his face to shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Philip Ryken exposits here, it is strange but true, godly wisdom makes a difference even in the way people look. People who live without God in the world often show the proud demeanor or the stern expression that comes from a heart hardened by sin, what the preacher calls hardness of face. But the wisdom of the gospel turns the frown of sin into the smile of grace. I love that. Summary, wisdom is good. It's good. It's really good. So Proverbs 4 says, get it. Get wisdom. Whatever you get, get understanding. Do not forsake wisdom. Love her. And now Solomon is going to offer us two proofs in verses 2 through 6 and then in verses 10 through 13, two proofs of wisdom's goodness, two things that wisdom has to offer us if we will let her, if we will love her and get her. Number one, first, by wisdom we learn to respect God and we obey authority. Wisdom teaches us to respect God by obeying the God-ordained authorities that he has instituted in our lives for our good. Verse 2, keep the king's command. Obey the authorities and charge over you. And then he immediately anticipates the next question on all of our sinful hearts, right? Because we bristle. If we're honest, we bristle when we hear, submit, obey authority, got a six-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. If I tell them, okay, kids, it's time to get in the shower, what is the first question they're already asking me before I even finish giving my order? Why? Why? Because you stink. Because I can literally see the dirt caked on your face. Because I'm your father and I said so. How many reasons do you want? But if we're honest, we're really not so different from our kids, are we? How many of you broke the speed limit on your drive over here this morning? Be honest. Only two of you. Yeah, okay. I thought so. 
How, how many of you cut a few corners at work this past week? Your boss said, you know, we're going to try out this new process. And you listen. You decided this new, his new way is dumb, inefficient. And you knew he would never even know if you just kept doing it the same old way you've always done it, that you're used to. How about spiritual authority? Remember when I asked you to read every chapter of Ecclesiastes, the week leading up to the sermons when I was going to preach on them? How many of you read Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this week? We're just like our kids, aren't we? We don't like being told what to do. Authority is practically a dirty word today. We prize freedom and personal autonomy above all else. Heck, our country was founded on it. God's word says, keep the king's command, but our country was founded by rebels who refused to obey the king. King George said, pay your taxes, and we said, we're going to show you where you can stick your taxes, and we dumped all his tea in Boston Harbor. That's who founded our country. Romans 13 says, pay your taxes. Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. As long as the king isn't commanding you to do something contrary to God's law, because God's law always trumps Man's law, Acts 5, when the Sanhedrin called the apostles in and told them to stop preaching the gospel, Peter said, look, you can do whatever you got to do to us, but uh, we must obey God and not man. But as long as we're not talking about the king commanding you to obey God's law, if the king's just telling you to go, keep it at 60 miles per hour on this particular stretch of the highway, even if there are no cops around, even if you think you're a safer driver at 70 than most people at 60, even if you think it's a stupid law in the first place, you submit to authority. Why? Why obey? Solomon's going to offer us four reasons here, but by far the most important and really the only one you should need is number one, out of respect for God. You do it out of respect for God. Keep the king's command, verse 2, because of God's oath to him. Orican explains, the rightful kings of Israel were the recipients of a royal promise. God had sworn to King David that one of his sons would sit on Israel's throne forever. The people of God were obliged to obey their earthly king because he was anointed by God Almighty. To obey the king was to give honor to God. Orican says, we honor God the same way. Admittedly, our own rulers have not received a covenant directly from God, but God makes it clear in his word that in his providence, God appoints the leaders of even our own government for our good. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever, therefore, resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. Our founding fathers were sinners. But guess what? So are you. You resist authority every day, don't you? And yet that's really the only reason that we should need to obey, to submit to authority is because God said so. First Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors for this is the will of God. Fear God, honor the emperor. And so when we defy human authority, we need to know that we're not just saying, 
you know, I think I know better than the Missouri Highway and Transportation Commission. We're not just saying, I think I know better than my boss. You're not just saying, I think I know better than my pastor. What you're really saying is, I think I know better than God. Because he's the one who sovereignly gave that person that position of authority in the first place and told me to submit to them. A second reason to obey the king, because it can buy you influence. We get practical now. Solomon says, if you're fortunate enough to get an audience with a king, be not hasty to go from his presence. It doesn't hurt to have friends in high places. Back in chapter 4, we saw this, that influence, power, it's just like wisdom. It can be a great thing, but it's all about how you use it. And so if you've got the king's ear, even if he's a corrupt king, like Moses did with Pharaoh, like Daniel did with Nebuchadnezzar, leverage that relationship for good, for, for, for all you can. Third reason to obey him, verse 3, is to save your own skin. He says, do not take your stand in an evil cause, for the king does whatever he pleases. The word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Practically speaking, it's just better to stay on the good side of the king. It's better to stay on the right side of the law, right? Jail isn't fun. So I hear. Fourth and final reason to obey authority, because it's just the right thing to do. Verse 5, Solomon says, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, be righteous, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So we could probably summarize all of this in verses 2 through 6 with this simple command, exhortation from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. This is the way of wisdom. But, but, now Solomon, having commended wisdom, is going to immediately pivot and turn and expose wisdom's limits. He says, sure, it can teach us the right way to live, verse 5, the wise heart knows the right way. However, verse 6, man's trouble lies heavy on him. And what is our trouble, verse 7, is that he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? So there's your first limitation of wisdom. Wisdom can't offer us foresight, foreknowledge, can't help us look into the future. Sure, wisdom can teach you the right way to respond in the present as life is coming at you, but it can't really help you change the future, at least not nearly as much as you think it can. All right? We like to think if I do the right thing, if I make wise choices in life, I can pretty much determine my future. Like if I study hard, I'll make good grades, make good grades, get into the good college. Uh, if I get into the good college, I get a good job get the right job, it's going to bring me vocational fulfillment and financial security, right? Solomon says, maybe, maybe, but you're connecting an awful lot of dots there. You're making an awful lot of assumptions in tracing that line, aren't you? And what if you study hard, but the teacher puts the wrong questions on the test? I would lo I always loved that one as a teacher. Or no matter how hard you study, you're just not a good test taker. Love that one. I, whenever... Students would tell me that. I'm like, well, I don't think you're going to like life very much then because life is full of tests. 
Or what about you, even if you make the grades that you want? What if they don't get you into the school you wanted because you were so busy studying you forgot to have a life or a personality and it shines through in your boring college essay? Right? Or the school's looking for more diversity and you can't help the fact that you're a straight white female. But let's say you do get into the school. Does that really guarantee you the job? Even if you get the job, does that really guarantee you the fulfillment, the security? Can you control the stock market? Right? Solomon's point is wisdom can't really promise you any of that. Even, even the wisest among us does not know what will be. We can't predict the future. James 4 says, you're crazy saying uh, next year, you know, making your five-year, ten-year plan, I'll go here and do that. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. You can't predict the future. Second, wisdom can't offer us immortality. I told you Solomon always brings it back to death at some point. In, in every chapter, every, every, every sermon that he preaches for us here in Ecclesiastes, it always comes back to death. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Again, talked about it two weeks ago a lot in, ver- in chapter 6 with money. We'll talk about it even more next week. In chapter 9, next week is going to be the entire focus of Solomon's uh, sermon. And so I'll just keep the point brief here. But suffice it to say, all the wisdom in the world cannot help you escape death. It, it is coming for us all, the fool and the sage, the rich and the poor, the righteous and the unrighteous. And in the second half of verse 8 here, Solomon gives us a couple examples to prove his point. He kind of brings it back to the king. He says, speaking of obeying the king, there's no discharge from war. Speaking of death, there are wars all over the time back in Solomon's day. And you don't get a draft exemption for being really wise. All the wisdom in the world doesn't get you out of the service when the king declares we're going to war. And he says, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it, even if you do the dishonorable thing and you dodge the draft, you flee to Canada. Says ultimately it's not going to save you. You can only cheat death for so long. Death comes for us all. And so thirdly, C, wisdom can't offer us justice. Verse 9. He says, All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. There's that phrase again, under the sun. This broken, fallen world we live in. When man had power over man to his hurt. Solomon says those given positions of authority, more often than not, will abuse them. They will use their power, their authority, to your hurt. So why does God call us to obey then? Even when authority is used unjustly, is God condoning injustice? Of course not. Isaiah 30, 18, Lord is God of justice. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, all God's ways are justice. But that's just the problem. All God's ways are justice. And God tried to be our king. Let's, let's zoom out for a minute and, and look at the, whole, the bigger picture here. God wanted, tried to be our king way back in the Garden of Eden. And that lasted for all of two chapters before we ousted him from the job. God didn't give up on us. God tried again on Mount Sinai to show us how to live under his good, benevolent rule as our king, our father. But while God was busy making the covenant up on the mountain with Moses, we were busy at the foot of the mountain already constructing a golden calf to worship instead. And so God again reaches out, 
Let me be your king. But we demanded instead a human king, just like all the other nations. This is the story of kings and chronicles in, in the Old Testament. Even though God had warned us that any human king would abuse his power, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely, right? This is what Solomon is saying here. He's recognizing wisdom can't protect you from that kind of injustice. Every human in authority over you is a sinner who, given long enough, will let you down, will hurt you, verse 9. If you join this church as a member and submit to me as your pastor, which I hope you will, which Hebrews 13, 17 calls you to if you're here, I can promise you two things. Number one, I'm going to try my hardest to shepherd your soul well, which is my calling as your leader, Hebrews 13, 17. And number two, I will fail. I will let you down. I will hurt you at some point if you stick around long enough because I'm a sinner just like you. And so Solomon wonders, is there no ultimate justice then? In the end, do, do, do people who abuse authority, just get to get away with it, get to live however they want, no, no consequences, no moral accountability? No, Solomon says. He comforts himself with this fact in verse 10. Verse 10, he shifts now back to wisdom. He says, then I saw the wicked buried. So sometimes death can be a good thing. Death is a great writer of wrongs. He says they used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. He says this also is hevel. That's not right. This under the sun, unjust, unjust world. But Solomon observes, being unjust here under the sun can actually win you praise, can get you the promotion. Step on people's backs. Next, to get where you want to go. That can work here under the sun. Both in the city, it's the political arena. Just look at the leaders that we elect these days. They put the Old Testament kings of Israel uh, to shame. They make, make them look like saints, a lot of the leaders we elect these days. But sadly, it's true even in the church, he says. E even in the holy place. More often than not, the more popular, right, the megachurch pastor, the more ungodly he is. And it was true and the Pharisees in Jesus' day, it's just as true today with the Joel Osteens and the Kenneth Copelands and the Benny Hens in our own day. And the reason that we resort to wickedness to get ahead in life, Solomon says, is because often we, we seem to think that the lack of justice here under the sun fools us into thinking that we can just get away with it. Verse 11, he says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. If you think there's no ultimate moral police to pull you over, then yeah, you're just going to speed recklessly all through life. But here is the consolation that Solomon offers us. He says, Although the wicked may prosper in this life, verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life by his evil, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Solomon says, here's an analogy for you. The afterlife is to this life 
kind of like what adulthood is to adolescence. You know how in, like adolescence goes to the best looking and you know the, the most athletic, the coolest kids, the, the, the too cool for, cool, for, for school kids, the popular kids. They win adolescence, not realizing that 10 years from now they're going to be begging for jobs from the same nerds they stuffed in lockers through high school. Solomon says, in the same way, the afterlife is the great table turning of this life, the righting of wrongs. The life to come is going to set the record straight. It will not be well for those who got ahead in this world by thumbing their noses at God and his authority. No, it will be well for those who feared God and shunned evil. And that is why wisdom is so important, such a beautiful thing, because it is by wisdom that we learn to fear God and thus to shun evil and to pursue holiness. Proverbs 1.7 and 9.10 and Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want wisdom? It's better than jewels, better than all the gold in the world. You want to chase after wisdom? Fear God. It's the beginning. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil also. If you fear God, you will hate what God hates. In Proverbs 14, 16, the one who is wise turns away from evil. And so once again, Solomon is telling us wisdom is a great thing. Wisdom maybe should have started with this. Define it, redefine it for you from a couple weeks back. Wisdom is the competency to live well. It shows us how to live rightly how to live in right relationship to God, fear him, healthy, respect, awe, wonder. In right relationship to man, obey authority, and in right relationship to the world, shun evil, mortify the flesh, pursue holiness. But, yet again, wisdom ultimately proves insufficient. Because it can't offer us three final crucial things. First, wisdom can't offer us justice. That is not a typo. That is an intentional repetition from point 1C. Once again here in point 2A. You remember Old Testament Hebrew, just like English today. You repeat for emphasis. Verse 14, Solomon, he, he's still stuck on this idea of justice. He can't get over the fact that no matter how wise you might be, no matter how competently you might live the way you're supposed to around here, there are simply no guarantees in life in this fallen world that we live in. There's, there's a vanity, he says, that takes place on earth. There, there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people according to whom it happens to the deeds of the righteous. This is vanity. Solomon says, look, I wish that, that, that karma was real. I, I mean, it, w- would it be so that life would be that simple and easy? I would love to live in a, in a, in a universe where karma is, is real. It sounds nice. What goes around comes around. Be good and eventually it'll all kind of work out for you. Solomon says, but in the real world that like we live in, I'm looking around and just observing there is far too much evidence to the contrary. And karma is not compatible with a biblical worldview. God is sovereign. Your actions are not. He says, sure, sometimes the good guy gets the girl in the end, but just as often, nice guys finish last. 
Sure, sometimes the wicked get what they deserve in this life. But for every scar, for every biff, for every Thanos, there is a Nurse Ratchet and an Anton Sugar and a Draco Malfoy. There's a villain who never gets punished. For every Hitler who paid for his crimes, there's a Stalin who lived out the rest of his days and got off scot-free. And so Solomon concludes in verse 15, So I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. Trust in God's judgment, God's justice in the afterlife, and in the meantime, just suck it up while you're here. Here under the sun, you just got to suck it up. And and while you're here, you might as well try and have some fun. Eat, drink, have some fun. Second, wisdom cannot offer us rest. Verse 16, neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Show of hands, how many of you have trouble sleeping at night sometimes? Okay, the rest of you, do you think we're all foolish, wicked sinners? Of course not, right? I hope not. Because wisdom doesn't promise you peace of mind. We would all love peace of mind. Every time our head hits the pillow, my wife has the spiritual gift of sleep. And she's struggling right now, being pregnant. We would all love to just be able to sleep like a baby every time our heads hit the pillow. Wisdom doesn't promise you that. As a matter of fact, Solomon told us back in chapter 1 that in much wisdom is much vexation, much frustration, worry, anxiety. Solomon says the more you actually get wisdom and come to understand life here under the sun in this fallen world of ours, the more you make sense of all the heaven around us, he says it ought to keep you awake at night, tossing and turning. And that leads Solomon to his final and most troubling of all critiques of wisdom, that all the wisdom in the world cannot offer us answers. It can't offer us answers to life's biggest questions. The question of what in the world is God up to down here? Don't we all want to know that? What in the world is God up to down here? Verse 17, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he can't find it out. Speaking of repetition, three times, just to drive the point home, we just can't know God's will, the works of God, sometimes. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, declares the Lord. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, Paul said. And as Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 2, 16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Now, you would think that that was a rhetorical question from Paul, wouldn't you? Who has understood the mind of the Lord? I mean, it seems like the expected answer is no one, obviously, no one can understand God's minds, God's mind, God's ways. And that's where Solomon leaves us in Ecclesiastes. But remember, zoom out, big picture, Old Testament, Solomon, he doesn't have the hope 
God's final answer, the writing of all the wrongs. So let's just let Paul finish his thought, okay? 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord? And he answers, But we have the mind of Christ. Paul says, No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, verse 11. But then he says, And we are now the temple of God's Holy Spirit. You can actually understand God, at least in some really important, significant ways that we're going to end with this morning. You want wisdom? You want to understand God's ways? What in the world God is up to down here? Listen, I don't claim to have all the answers for you this morning. Solomon says anyone who does is a liar. Don't trust him. Find a different church. No one knows why God lets parents bury their kids. No one knows why God lets men like Hitler and Stalin and Putin rise to positions of power. No one knows why God lets sinners harden their hearts against them all the way to hell. No one knows. But do you know what we can know this morning? With absolute certainty. The answer that we do have this morning It's how any of this can be made right in the end. And the answer is Jesus. Jesus' incarnation was the proof that no matter how bad it gets down here, no matter how bad we make it, we wreck it with our sin. Remember, we got nowhere to point the finger but ourselves. We are to blame for the mess that this world is. But Jesus' incarnation, friends, that we're getting ready to celebrate at Christmas is proof that no matter what, our God won't give up on us. Jesus' life was the proof that he loves us, that God didn't just hold his nose and say, all right, let's get this over with. No. He said, I have called you friends. He said, I want to give you life to the fullest because I care about you. And greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you, friend. Jesus' death and resurrection was not only the proof of his love, it was the proof that God has the power to redeem even the very worst of this world and use it for good. Jesus' crucifixion, the worst event in all of history, the death of God's own son, was the very means God used to purchase us, to redeem us, to make us his children. Do not trust in your own wisdom, friends, in your own ability to make sense of this nonsensical world. Trust in Jesus instead. Jesus is the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1.24. Jesus is God's amen to all of his good promises in his word, 2 Corinthians 1.20. Jesus alone can offer us the justice, the rest, the eternal life that we seek. Jesus alone is the answer to every problem in this world, and he alone can promise and make good on the promise that he is returning one day to make all things new, to right every wrong. Trust in wisdom, and it will bring you much vexation. Trust in Jesus this morning, and it can bring you victory.